All right, we are going line by line through the Lord's Prayer. I'm having a good time with this. I hope you're encouraged by it. We're learning how to pray. The Lord's Prayer is called the reshaping prayer, right? It's not that the disciples never prayed before and Jesus is going to teach them anew. Rather, Jesus is reshaping the way they pray, like a voice instructor. Maybe like a barber cuts hair. It's not like the hair hasn't been there, but he's reshaping the haircut. So the Lord comes aside us and he takes our prayers and reshapes them in a certain direction to the glory of God. And that's what we're talking about. Let me put the outline up if I can from my slides. This is the prayer, the outline. There's many ways to outline, but here's one we're using. It might be good to lock this in a little bit. The person of God, our Father who art in heaven. The promises, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The provision of God. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the provision of God. So let me start talking about this, give us this day our daily bread. Here's the the big idea we want to think about, and it's this. Worry. Worry has a way of unsettling our emotions and upsetting our spirit. Worry has a way of completely unsettling us. There's an article in Time magazine called The Science of Anxiety. Let me read you how it begins. It's 4 a.m. and you're wide awake. Right away, some of us can identify. (laughs) Palms are sweaty, heart is racing, you're worried about your kids, your aging parents, your 401k, your health, your sex life. Breathing evenly beside you, your spouse is oblivious. (laughs) Doesn't he or she see the dangers that lurk in every shadow? He must not. Otherwise, how would we be with all that's going on in the world so calm at dinner last night and talk about flying to Florida for a vacation? That's how Christy Gorman opens her, uh, her article. And does that ring a bell? Because it does for me. And I can tell you, I've had times in my life when, when, when that's the thing. I'm up at 4 o'clock. I'm up at 3 o'clock. All kinds of things are racing through my mind. We find a way to worry about everything. We worry about food. We worry about shelter. We worry about 401ks. We worry about health. We worry about aging parents. We worry about if people are being nice to our kids. We find a way of worrying about everything. And here's the real problem of worry that, I, that I've identified in my own life is it's like, a, it's like a, uh, an assembly line. As soon as you're done worrying about one thing, what happens? Something else immediately pulls up and fills it. And then you deal with that and something else pulls up. The only thing that pushes a worry out of some of our minds is what? Another worry. <laughs> in this little line, Jesus, when he says, give us this day our daily bread, he is encouraging us not to worry about where things are going to come from, but pray for them and trust God that he will provide. And so we're going to talk about the provision of God this morning, this line in the Lord's Prayer. And I want to give you about four or five ideas here that Uh, I find encouraging, I think you will too, and how it relates to us. So let's think about it this way. Jesus says, here's number one, give us this day our daily bread. And I like the way somebody put this early on in my life, and I'll repeat it here. It's important to you, it's important to God. We have to realize that the material needs that you and I have are not outside of the scope of a God-centered prayer. If it's important to you, it's important here to God. That God provides for us. Now, here's what happens in Christianity. Now, maybe you can identify with something like this. We have to be careful of what we call the danger of that that swinging pendulum. When you start to study prayer in the Bible, it isn't long before you realize that a lot of the ways we pray, people pray, 
is, is maybe not the things that you find in Scripture. A lot of the times, it's almost a psychological or material wish list. Where it go, Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. Oh, God, take this anxiety away. Take the stress. You know, it's, it's a wish list of kind of psychological needs and material needs. And when you start to study prayer in the Bible, you realize that's not the preponderance of the prayers in Scripture. A lot of them have to do with spiritual maturity. A lot of them have to do with growing in Christ and putting on the, the, the armor of God and the fruit of the Spirit. And so, so what happens is we start to almost overcorrect where we, we, we start to feel like God is unconcerned about the material needs. I mean, read Colossians and read Ephesians and read those prayers. They're loaded with things like growing in Christ and developing a knowledge of Jesus. And that's a correction that's healthy and welcomed. But we have to be careful the pendulum doesn't swing all the way to the other side where we miss the fact that God wants us to pray about our material needs. And he wants us to pray about our psychological needs. The line is in the Lord's Prayer. It's not just our Father who art in heaven, hallowed and all those flowery, important ideas about God. Eventually, Jesus gets there and says, you want to pray this way too, give us this day our daily bread. See, it's the concept that bread is mentioned in the Lord's Prayer tells us that your material needs are not outside the scope of a God-centered prayer. And we should bring these things to God. It's important to you. And it's important to God. And that's good news. Here's a list of things in Scripture that people prayed for that are, well, they don't sound so spiritual. I'm sure they are if you think them through. But Israel prayed for economic help. You ever pray for economic help? You're in good company. Solomon prayed for wisdom. I find myself praying for wisdom all the time. Great verse in James. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives it freely. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. Jabez prayed that his borders would be extended. Paul prayed for a removal of the thorn in the flesh. Jairus prayed that Jesus would heal his little girl. A crowd prayed that Jesus would give them food. Peter asked Jesus to pray his taxes. Some of you need to ask Jesus to pray your your taxes. Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for a child. John the Apostle prayed that his church would be in good health. Those things on the surface don't sound so spiritual. They're material needs. Some of those are psychological needs, you know. And we don't want the pendulum to swing all the other way. When you read the Bible, a lot of the prayer has to do with growing in Christ and spiritual maturity and building each other up in the faith. That's really important that that's a big part of our prayer life, probably the bulk of it. But if the pendulum goes too far, we're going to miss this. The material things that we pray for, that is not outside the scope of a God-centered prayer. God is glorified. He wants us to pray about these things. We should feel the liberty, feel the invitation to pray for your daily bread, to pray for a better job, to pray for a better interest rate on the house, to pray that God provides a good car for your transportation, to pray that you get your kids into a school where they can best bring glory to God. These things are not outside of the will of God as we pray. We're supposed to bring everything to the Lord, including these material needs. I love this verse in Psalm 37. Once I was young and now I am old. That part of the verse I'm starting to identify with. He goes on to say, I have never seen the godly abandoned or the children begging bread. 
In other words, David is confident that God provides for his people and provides for his children, you and me. So the very first principle here, maybe it's the most important. It's important to you and it's also important to God. Feel the liberty to pray for these things as you need them. Number two, let me word it this way. God usually provides for us through ordinary means. And I'll unpack this a little bit. What do I mean by ordinary means? I mean, he often provides through our work. He often provides through the economy, through transactions in the marketplace. He provides through what we call ordinary means. Uh, God providentially provides through ordinary means. And why is this important? Here's why. I have never met anybody, I don't know anybody in the history of Christianity, okay, that, that believed when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, that the regular way God would do that is to drop baskets of food out of the sky. I don't know anybody that thinks that. It's not that God can't drop baskets of food. It's not that he can't get water or wine out of water. But the regular way God provides for people is through ordinary means. That's what Jesus is implying here. That God would work in a way that would provide. Even the most supernaturally sensitive Christians I know don't think that every meal is going to come from an act of the supernatural. You know, like man in the wilderness type stuff. And so we have verses like this. Psalm 27, 127 verse 1. And I'm going to take you on a windy road and bring you back. Just hang with me for a minute. Listen to this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that built it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Listen to the language. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that built it. Who built the house? The builders of the Lord. According to the psalmist, God is working through the builders. Do you see why when somebody moves into a new house, they might give a prayer of dedication or thank God? Because they believe God used the builders to provide the house. The house didn't fall out of the sky. He didn't snap his fingers and it came up from the ground. I'm not doubting God can do that. The regular way God provides housing for people is through builders. And then you have a verse like this. The eyes of all who look to you, you give them food in due season. You give them food in due season. Martin Luther, he loved this verse, the reformer. And what Luther would say is, God provides food, now we're getting closer to the prayer here, through who? Through the farmers, right, and through the marketplace. God provides through people, he provides through systems, he provides through, through uh, workers. And so the, the word we're actually looking for here is a big theological word we call providence, God providentially provides for his people. When we say providence, that means sometimes the Lord can snap his fingers and make something happen in your life. I have no, no reason to believe he can't. He does. But most of the time, God provides. He's going to do it through providence. So here's an example. Here's the, one of the first uses of providence that we know, pictures. Remember when Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac? And by the way, Abraham always knew God would provide. That's why he said, we're going to go. The Lord would provide a sacrifice. By faith, he believes God will provide. So he takes Isaac up the mountain. And there's this picture of the sacrifice of Isaac. And just before he's about to sacrifice Isaac, of course, the Lord stops him and he looks over and what's in a thicket? Remember? It's a, the ram is in the thicket. God provided the sacrifice through the ram in the thicket. We could do a whole sermon on the ram in the thicket. Wow, that would be a good sermon title, wouldn't it? 
How'd the, how'd the ram get in the thicket? I don't know how the ram got in the thicket, but he didn't fall out of the sky. Maybe he was chasing a mouse. I don't know. Maybe he was looking for water. Maybe he wandered into the thicket because he was hiding from some kind of predator. But the ram, God had the lamb get in the thicket so God could provide a sacrifice for Abraham. What the world calls coincidence, we call the providence of God. It's a coincidence that the house came on the market, it happened to be in your price range, the interest rates were right, you were able to, but that's not a coincidence, that's the providence of God. People think it's a coincidence. You go down to the store and there's bread on the shelves. We believe that is God providing for people through ordinary means. Here's an interesting uh, passage in Acts 27 where Paul is out to sea and they get into a big, it's called a Eurachlodon in the ancient world. It's a hurricane. They call it a Eurachlodon and the boat starts to turn over. 14 days now the sailors are in great distress and none of them have eaten. And everybody turns to Paul. Paul, if you want to learn how to navigate the waters, Paul's your guy. He's been everywhere, right? And they all look to Paul. And Paul says, I perceive you haven't eaten in 14 days. We all need to eat. We need to eat. And this is what Paul does. Listen to the verse. He said this, time to eat. He took some bread and he gave thanks in front of them all and broke it and began to eat. Why did Paul give thanks? Because he knew that bread was from God. Here's my question. Where'd the bread come from? Did it come out of a fish's mouth? They're in, no. Did it fall from the sky? Did he snap his fingers and it appeared? You know where the bread came from? It came from a bakery in Fairhaven where they pulled out of with the boat. Where'd the flour come from? Somebody's field that gave it to the bakery. You see, Paul understood that that bread, though it came through the hands of people, it even probably came through the marketplace that God was providing through these ordinary means. The point here to appreciate is all the good gifts we have from God, we recognize they're from God. Give us this day our daily bread doesn't mean God is going to provide apart from the markets. That usually means he's going to provide through the markets. It doesn't mean that God is going to provide absent you and I working. It means that God will provide through our working. This is really important. And here's why. The farmer is doing the work of God. The builders are doing the work of God. You see? That's why we have verses like, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you're a Christian, you believe God provides through people's hands When you do that, you do it to the glory of God. There's a whole theology of work built into this passage. I know it's subtle, but it's very clear when we see it, right? God binds up the wounds through the doctor. He sends bread through the worker at the factory. He advocates for a client through the social worker. I think one application here is we should decompartmentalize our lives. We don't have our work life over here and our church life over here. We want to do all to the glory of God. The, the reformers, boy, they did a lot with this. See, the old system before the Protestant Reformation, the people believed you had church stuff and then you had work stuff. And the only time it counted for God is when you did it for the church. So if you painted your house, that doesn't count for the Lord. But if you paint the church, that counts. You know, that glorifies God. He doesn't care about this. 
If you do financial work for yourself or for a neighbor, that's not, God is indifferent. But if you do financial work for the church, then you're really serving the Lord. But the whole Protestant Reformation came and said, no, 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 no. We do all to the glory of God. We're going to decompartmentalize our lives. I'm not just going to bind up wounds here in the church from somebody from Sunday school that fell. I can do that at the hospital. And I'm not just going to glorify God by volunteering my accounting hours to the church, though we'll take it. Uh, I'm going to do that to the glory of God at my firm. And that's why you have people like William Tyndale, the reformer, said, the difference between washing dishes and preaching the word of God when it comes to pleasing the Lord, none at all. Now, what did Tyndale mean? You can preach to the glory of God. You can wash dishes to the glory of God. God provides through ordinary means. You see where he's coming from? And the Lord doesn't provide despite our work. He often provides because of it. So we want to put the work in. Number three is this. Third thought is, it's the heart of God to provide for his children. Give us this day. Lock that word in. Give. Give us this day our daily bread. Beautiful word. It doesn't say sell it to us. I don't know about you, but one of the things that keeps me from praying, really praying, is guilt. So you're the pastor. That's not supposed to work like that with you, but it does. Sometimes you have a bad day. Sometimes you have a bad week or month. And you got all kinds of things in your life that you're dealing with, and you don't feel the liberty to pray. Guilt in prayer is like quicksand. It just bogs you down and doesn't let you get out, and you feel like your prayers aren't going to go anywhere anyway, so you don't even pray. That's where Jesus says, I'm going to provide for you, not because you're a good, outstanding, moral person, but because I'm a good, outstanding, righteous God. It's by his grace. He's not saying to us, you, you, you be on your best behavior. He's, Give us to stay our daily bread. Jesus, provide because of your grace. There's not a moral transaction taking place. By the way, I find it interesting. Notice the order of events. Give us to stay our daily bread and, you know the other part? Forgive us our trespasses. Why isn't it inverted? You, I would think it would be inverted. I would think God would look at us and say, confess your sins first, get right with me, and then I'll give you your daily bread. But he doesn't do that. Give us this day our daily bread. It seems to be somewhat independent of even the confession, though we're going to confess. The prodigal son understood this. You know, the prodigal son didn't know if he was going to be forgiven by the father. That's why he said, I'm going to go home and say, hire, hire me as one of thy hired servants. But he knew the father would provide for him. Because even the servants have what? Bread enough to spare. God wants us to go to him. Not, not just on that, I feel like I have a clean heart day. But we ask for our daily bread. Despite what's taking place in our lives. The Lord, let me put it to you this way. If you're a father or a mother, if you waited for your kids to behave before you fed them, they would starve to death. <laughs> You know, Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is probably having the worst day of his life. His faith is collapsing. He's a professional prophet, but his faith is collapsing. Jezebel, the queen, wants to take his life. What does he do? He goes and he runs and he hides under the tree. And he says, Lord, take my life. And then he says this, I am no better than my father's. And what that means is, I've tried just as hard as them and nobody wants to hear my message. He's having a collapse of faith. Worst day of his life. He's moved with not only depression at this moment, 
but he's also moved with a crisis of faith, some kind of crisis of faith. And right there in the crisis of faith, he falls asleep. Remember what happens? The Lord wakes him up with an angel and gives him what? Bread. That is God providing for Elijah, not because he is full of faith, but despite that lack of faith. And the same is true with you and I. If God waited for you to have a clean heart before he fed you, you would starve to death. He provides by his grace. He's not providing because of our moral performance. And the point that I just want to get across to me and then you is go to God. Go with all your imperfections. Don't let that guilt be like quicksand in your life. You say, my thoughts today have been so bad, there's no way I could ever pray for God to give me a better job. Pray for it. Go to God. Reach out to him in prayer. Let him, let him give us to stay our daily bread. There's such power in that. All right, number four. Last point, but we're going to unpack kind of the Old Testament passage here on the manna. And it's this. God is calling us here to depend on him daily. That word is really important. Give us to stay our yeah, daily bread. Yeah, most of us are like, can I get like a decade's worth? <laughs> you know, that would make me feel real good. Yeah, we'd all like that. And some of you may have what feels like a decade's worth. But you know what God is teaching us? Give us their daily bread. He wants us to pray every day for that daily bread. He wants us to, become, to know that we are dependent on him. We are not dependent on the economy. We are not dependent on interest rates. And we're not dependent on what goes around us. We are dependent upon God. Now, we talked about this in the past. There are times when you find a line in the Bible or a couple words and it refers to a whole story. This one, you've got to be tone deaf to miss this one. Give us to stay our daily bread obviously refers to the manna in the wilderness. Christians have always taken it that way with good cause. So I want to go back to the manna in the wilderness here, which is in Exodus 16 if you want to follow along. And we're going to briefly go through the passage and talk about how God wants us to be dependent on him and trust him. And we do that through prayer. So let me give you three points out of the manna in the wilderness, out of Exodus 16. First point is this. We pray for our daily bread because we want God to provide, and he can provide, in the most desperate of times. It doesn't matter how desperate the time is, God is able to provide. Verse 1, they set out from Elam, and this is Israel. They've gone through the the, the sea. They're walking now as a nation, going to the promised land, and they're going through what's called the wilderness of sin. By the way, the word's no theological value there. That's just the word. It's it's like, should have picked a better word, right? Wilderness of, doesn't mean they're sinning in a wilderness, though they are. It's actually the wilderness of zin, but we pronounce it sin in English. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel went into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day, the second month, they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now, let's notice the magnitude of the crisis. The whole congregation is walking through the wilderness. What does it mean when the author says, all of the people? Well, when I think of all of the people, I'm thinking about what? A thousand people? Maybe a couple thousand people? Would it surprise you to know that just a couple chapters prior to this, they counted 600,000 men, just the men, not counting the Levites, that doesn't include the women, and it doesn't include any child under 20 years old. 600,000 men 
Commentators estimate when you add them all up, you are between 2 and 3.5 million people there at this point in the wilderness. You know how many people reside in Fairfield County? Anybody want to take a guess? I bet somebody knows this. Oh, that's so good. I had to look it up and I was way off. 900, I think 950,000. We'll call it, round it up to a million if you like. Anybody know how many people in the state of Connecticut? 3.5, excellent. 3.5 million. You want a range of how many people are walking through the wilderness together? Possibly as many as in the state of Connecticut. That'd be the high end. And probably more than the Fairfield County and a few surrounding counties. There are so many people that if you were in the back of the line, right, and everybody froze and you started to walk, you're like a day or two before you get to the front. There are so many people walking through the wilderness. This is true, that if you lose track of your child, you might not find them for months. I imagine that happened a lot and people were adopting kids along the way. That's how many people. And they're all hungry. 3.5, 2 million maybe in the wilderness. Now, when you think of wilderness, you're thinking of like Huntington State Park in Redding, right? Well, I mean, it's tough walking through the woods, but you might be able to find some food. Might be some berries or, I don't know, you can at least eat bugs and things like that in the wilderness. Wilderness here doesn't mean wilderness like you and I. All it means is a large tract of uninhabited land. And in this case, we're talking about a desert. The odds that you're going to walk across a buffet of any kind in a desert are slim to none. This is absolutely and utterly desperate and dire conditions. How will God provide for 2 to 3.5 million people in a desert? That's the drama of the situation in verse 1. And that's where we've got to pause right here and say, you know, with God all things are possible. Sarah laughed. Moses cried. Habakkuk complained. But all of them would learn that with God all things are possible. We should pray for our daily bread because God can provide in the most desperate of times. I wonder if anybody here feels that way now. You're like, I'm, I'm way too old to retrain for one of these jobs and I'm about to be laid off. My 401k is being spent. How will God provide for my children going to college? I really want to help them along. Sometimes we feel very desperate. God can provide in the most desperate of situations. Number two, I think we should pray for our daily bread because God is going to grow us to trust him as we do. We're going to grow as God provides. Let's talk about this for a minute. Look at verse 12 through 14. Oh, I'll give you a quiz if you want. Uh, the Lord's going to provide manna, but he also provides one more thing. Anybody know what it is? Yeah, quails. Very good. Look at verse 12. I heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew laid on the ground. When the morning dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And the people saw it. They said to one another, what is this? And that's going to be the manna. Manna literally means, what is this? Here's what I want you to see. God is going to provide in the most desperate of situations through both through both miraculous and regular kind of means. Let's start with the quails. When you and I hear the quails, we think like that must have been the most miraculous thing that ever happened. But commentators tell us that what's happening at this point on the Sinai Peninsula there is actually pretty normal. 
they tell us that it's pretty normal for a flock of quails to fly over, you know, fly over the, the, the water there, and the crosswinds push them down. They become so exhausted that when the crosswinds start to push them down, the quails go down and they start, to, they start to land. In fact, those quails that can't make it have been known to land on the boats and it causes a lot of weight on the boats and it causes them to rock around. So the idea that the quails are flying low to the ground, that's actually pretty normal there on this part of the Sinai Peninsula. One commentator talks about to this day, the young Arab boys will go out with sticks and hit the quails. And that's how they, that's how they catch the quails and have dinner. You just have to catch them at the right time. It's like the tide coming in. The point to appreciate is God is providing here through a very ordinary way. This is how the market works over there. And God uses their market to feed the people. And God can use this market to take care of you. Sometimes the job comes because you put your resume out on monster.com or something like that. There are ways that God provides. He brings you clients because you're advertising on the internet. It's a regular, ordinary way that God provides. But there are other times God provides in a very miraculous way. And that's where the manna comes in. This bread-like stuff on the ground. I've read as much on the manna, I imagine, as most people. There's all kinds of suggestions what this was. Is it honeydew? Is it the stuff that grows on the rocks? I can tell you there's a reason Israel went out and said, what is this? Because nobody knows what it is. That's what manna means. The manna supernaturally fell from the sky. There is nothing natural about the manna. It's a supernatural act of God. There are times that God provides in a very normal way. And there are times when God provides in what certainly could be called a very supernatural way. Whether through the quail or the manna, this is what God is teaching them. Verse 12. I have heard them grumbling. The people say, say to all of them at twilight, you shall eat the meat in the morning. You shall be filled with bread. Listen to this. Then you shall know I am the Lord your God. In other words, I want you to depend on me for your daily bread so that you grow in your faith and see that I'm the one that's providing for you. God wants us to find our security in Christ Christ alone. R.C. Sproul, the theologian, has a really great little illustration. He talks about after the Korean War, which is 1950s, there was that divide in North and South Korea, and um, the agencies in South Korea, there was a large number of children affected by the war. Many of them were orphaned. All kinds of orphanages in the 50s and 60s there in South Korea. And even though the children were fairly well taken care of, though I don't doubt there was some dire circumstances, You can imagine how a young child would feel just so insecure as to where their next meal would come from. And so what the workers decided to do is when the child went to bed, they noticed the kids were up at night worrying about where their morning meal is going to come from. And so what they would do is the workers would walk around and they'd let each child hold on to a piece of bread as they fell asleep. And I'm just picturing a little, you know, six-year-old boy or six-year-old girl just kind of holding a piece of bread like this finding some kind of security in the provision that's coming. And, you know, God wants us to trust in him, to know that he is the one that gives us the daily bread. Each day we wake up, he's going to provide for us. Last point is this. We should pray for our daily bread because that is one way we experience the reality of God. I want to give you three 
phrases here in the passage. And they all say the same basic thing. Verse 7 says, when you see the man and the quails, you're going to see the glory of God. Verse 9, you're going to come near to the glory of God. In verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared. What does that mean? Those are three phrases that tell us that when God provides for us, we experience his glory. Like that's a powerful moment with you and God when you know that he is the one providing for you. I mean, picture this. You're walking through the wilderness as one of those 2 to 3.5 million people. You are absolutely starving. Your children are starving. Every time you get a loaf of bread, you distribute it to your family because you know that's what God wants you to do. And what happens? You yourself are starving. They're still starving. And then you, you know, you've never met Moses. Remember, we're talking about two million people. It's not like everybody was Moses' friend. Some people probably had never, ever seen Moses literally face to face. But this Moses guy that caused the exodus to happen and told us to paint our doors, he says, be patient. God is going to provide. And you start to trust in that. You got good reason to trust in that because this God has provided for you in the past. And there you are standing. All of a sudden, these quails come down. And your 10-year-old son is out there with a stick just trying to pull one of them down for dinner. And then you go out the next day and there's this, what is it, all over the ground. And you collect it and you eat it and you're nourished. And then now you're, now you're praying, oh God, would you help us tomorrow to have this? And you go out the next day and there it is all over the ground. You know what happens in your heart and in your life at that moment? You have just come near to the Lord, verse 9. You have seen the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord has appeared, verse 10. You are experiencing God's blessing and that is causing you to have, for lack of a better phrase, a God moment that you can't buy. Sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's small. But those moments are so precious in your walk with God. We've all had these. I heard a great testimony this morning about one. You know, when I, uh, I was thinking, my, my wife and I, when our kids were little, uh, one of them played soccer, you know, and, and um, it was pouring rain. We had all the kids in the car, three kids in the car, and one of them playing soccer, just pouring rain, but they're still going to have the game. And, and we had a, a no umbrella, and I thought, well, we, you know, let's get to the game, let's at least get an umbrella, let's, okay, so we pull in the CVS, and I go in, and all they have is the really small umbrellas, and I'm like, that's not going to get our family under it, and I don't, it's, it's like not a big deal, but in the moment, you're like, I need an umbrella, you know how you stress out about things, you know, and we're driving, and, and we're going to be late, and I said, Tina, pull in the Target, and I'm just going to walk into the front door, if they have a big umbrella, I'm going to buy it real fast, if they don't, we're just going to go to the game and get wet, and as she's driving towards, you know, Target, I'm, I get that moment. Why am I not praying about this? I know it's not the end of the world, but God told me to pray about things. And so I started to pray. God, would you please provide? Would you find a way to get us an umbrella in our hands? You own a cattle on a thousand hills. I'm sure you have an umbrella somewhere in the closet. You know, one of those prayers. This actually happened. I walked into Target through the two big doors, and there's a lady standing there with two umbrellas. And she looks at me and says, do you want one of these? (laughs) She says, I just bought these. They won't take this one back. It's got one stitch that's broken. They won't take it back. I'm just going to give this one away and keep the new one I bought. And I said, thank you, God, you know. (laughs) There's the ram in the thicket, if I've ever seen one, you know. 
And at that moment, I got this, this you ever have this, this spine-numbing moment, spine-tingling. You know, you know what happened to me in that moment? I saw the glory of the Lord, verse 7. The Lord came near to me, verse 9. The glory of the Lord appeared. We pray for our daily bread for these reasons. He can provide in the most desperate of times. God has a way of growing our faith as we pray for our daily bread. And man, can we experience God when we bring these things to him. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace. Thank you for providing for us. I imagine if we went around the room and took testimonies about answers to prayer, we would really see how you've worked in so many people's lives, often in big ways, sometimes in very small ways. But there you are present in our answers to prayer. So help us to bring these before you. Today we are reminded that the material things we pray for are not outside of the scope of a God-centered prayer. You want us to pray for these things. So speak to our hearts. Help us to drink from that living water that you are. And glory belongs to you in Jesus' name. Amen.